You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. If you would have met me in my sophomore year of college at a time when I was actively avoiding church engagements and actively stifling, or to use the verbiage of Romans 1.18, suppressing what I knew to be true in my heart, and you were to say, young man, you went to church as a child, why aren't you going to church now? I'm going to let you fill in the blank. My response would have likely been, I'm not going there because that place is full of a bunch of hypocrites. That place is full of a bunch of hypocrites. The reason I bring that up, not because my assessment was necessarily correct, but you'll see that word in our text for today. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. So, so far in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord, and again, we've said it time and again, that the Sermon on the Mount is the way of the kingdom, not the way into the kingdom. It is not a set of moral steps to get into the kingdom of God or a self-salvation project. It is not that. It is the way of the kingdom. And so far in Matthew 5, our Master, our Lord, has been laying out a number of what we would call imperatives of things to do. Ways to put your regenerate heart into motion. Ways that your regenerate heart should influence your hands. And we notice that if we just glance back at Matthew 5. He says this about anger. It's not enough just to do this, but I say to you, do this. It is not enough just to not commit adultery, but I call you to not do this. That there are things that regenerate hearts are to do. That we are pardoned by grace, and we are empowered by grace. And that is what Jesus has been driving at most noticeably in Matthew 5.16. So glance back with me. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now just put your finger there. (laughs) Now go to our text today in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. These are the things that drive pastors and preachers, people that handle the text, crazy because you're looking and going, which one is it? Because it is almost verbatim the opposite of what he said in Matthew 5.16, isn't it? So you can imagine me sitting at my desk, fully caffeinated, as if I'm not ever fully caffeinated, going, Lord, what's going on? Because in Matthew 5.16, you said, go and practice your righteousness. Let your light shine. Be a city on a hill. Be salt and light. Remember that sermon, Pastor Redberg? That was really good. And now you're saying, don't do things in front of other people. In the words of my southern grandmother, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so I found a quote from John Stott that it was exceedingly helpful. Stott says this, referring to Matthew 5.16 and then Matthew 6.1 and trying to make sense of those two, John Stott says this, it is our human cowardice which made Christ say, let your light shine before men. And it is our human vanity which made him tell us to beware of practicing our piety before men. End quote. The good shepherd knows the sheep. He knows that it's a scary world out there. 
And so he comes along and says, do this, do this. That, that impulse of your new heart, let me encourage you to go, go, be a light, go. But he also knows that even though we are free from sin's dominating power, that's Romans 6, we are not yet free from sin's presence. We are not yet fully glorified. And so as the consummate shepherd of the people, he says, go, be a light. But I also know that there is still a sinful proclivity to do religious things in order to get a pat on the back. So let me help you there as well. As one who spends a lot of his life in public ministry, this text, not about the giving, but getting to the heart of it, cut me to the core. And it, quite frankly, it scared me to death because I thought, Lord, so much of what I do in your name is seen. God help me. I'm very thankful for the good shepherd who comes to us in this text to help us avoid that analogy that Martin Luther used that is so appropriate. If you've ever ridden a horse, you know you can fall off the horse to the left, you can fall off the horse to the right. Some of us have fallen off the horse backwards, but that's not what we're talking about right now. Theologically, it is easy to fall off the theological horse to the right or to the left. And we often have a proclivity to one or the other. And so the good shepherd comes and steadies us in the saddle and says, be brave and bold, get out there, but be careful as you go and serve in my name that you not become a glory thief because there's no joy there. I've said it at the beginning, and I'll say it again because I think it's very apropos for this text. When it comes to giving, giving to the needy, acts of what theologians would call Christian piety, and there were three in the Jewish world, and that's what Jesus is focusing on, and that's giving to the needy, prayer, and fasting. We'll talk about prayer next Sunday, and then shortly after we'll talk about fasting. But these are personal acts of piety, and Jesus is focusing on those and this is what I'll say, when it comes to giving, when it comes to praying, when it comes to fasting, but specifically for today, for giving to other people, to the needy, Jesus is more concerned with motive than he is with method. This text has much to say, but it is strikingly silent on well, what amount and how do I do it? Is it check, cash, or money order? Like, like how, He doesn't get into that. Because I would argue that it's not essentially about that. It's about the heart of the matter. You don't have to read the Gospels for long to know that Jesus was exceedingly compassionate. But oh, was he shrewd. He never settled for superficiality. He always went to the heart. And I praise him for that. The main point, if I were to distill this down and say, tell me, Pastor, in these four verses, give me one sentence on what you think it's saying. Here it is. Seeking our joy in God's glory is the best defense against hypocrisy when it comes to giving. Seeking our joy in God's glory is the best defense against hypocrisy when it comes to giving. And quite frankly, it's the best defense against hypocrisy when it comes to a million other things. The first thing we want to see from the text here in verse 1 is the danger of evil desires. So I've got three points. Number one, the danger of evil desires. Our Lord would spare us from this. 
Look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Now again, I won't labor the point, but that seems to be opposite of what he said in 5.16. Be a light. Go and do it. That's not the issue. The issue is not practicing Christian piety in front of other people. There are times when you give and people will see you do it. There are times when you pray. Pastor Redberg just prayed in front of people. Does he need to repent? Of course not. The motive is what he's after. Look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the rub. In order to be seen by other people. You know, this was a common problem among the religious elites of Jesus' day. And we see that in technicolor in Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Familiar passage to some, not familiar to others. But this illustrates the heart of what Jesus is driving at contextually. In Luke chapter 18, verse 10, we read this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. Just imagine hearing this prayer. Talk about cringeworthy prayers. Some of you know what's coming. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm just picturing some of you guys at a prayer meeting, like cracking your eye open, going, did he just say that? (laughs) God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, him, that guy. I fast twice a week. So you see, how is he justifying himself? How is he, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I get. Those were the acts of piety that the religious elite prostituted to bring glory to themselves. But you notice that Pharisee in Luke 18 was a giver. He really did give money to the needy. He gave alms. But he remained condemned, just like so many of the Pharisees. Why? He did the thing. Right, Jesus? I did the thing. Jesus is way more concerned with motive than he is with method. The problem was that he was a glory thief. Using God as a means of glorifying ourselves, beloved, is an evil desire. So in essence, Jesus is coming to us, his people, here in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, and he's caring for us. He's guarding us. He's not saying, don't serve me. That's, that's antithetical to his entire ministry. He's just saying, do it in a way that preserves your joy for doing it for my glory alone. The question I had, and maybe this is a bit of a rabbit hole, but we've got a few minutes. As I was reading this, I'm going, okay, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So what's underneath this? What would motivate someone, a kingdom citizen that he's talking to, a disciple, what would motivate them or tempt them to give or pray or do anything in Jesus' name in order to be seen by other people? People, what would tempt them to, to give in to the evil desire of stealing glory from the Lord? 
based upon the witness of Scripture in my own heart, I, I think what's, un, what's the sin under the sin? That's where Jesus is always going. What's the sin under the sin? I, I think it's the fear of man. Proverbs 29.25 has been in a spiritual antibiotic in my life. The fear of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. What else would motivate someone to do religious things in order to be seen? What, what are we trying to get? I need your affirmation. I need your approbation. I need your stamp of approval here. God's isn't enough. I need you to tell me that I'm religious. I need you to tell me that how spiritual I am. Like me. Approve me. Let's cut even deeper. Justify me. Because now I've just made you my functional savior. And my justification is no longer in Christ. My justification is in your hands. So will you tell me I'm spiritual? Savior? This was really brought to home in my heart as one who spends a lot of time in public ministry. When the fear of man is always nipping at my heels. I heard a sermon, and as soon as I say this name, some of you are going to groan because you know it is always convicting in a wonderful way. But I was listening to Paul Washer. <laughs> and Brother Washer was preaching to a group of pastors, and God bless him. He said, young man, if the Lord decided to use your roommate to further his kingdom and to further his name, would you be content carrying his bags for him and praising God for his work through your friend? I thought, would I? Would I? God, do a work in our lives. Do a work in our lives, good shepherd, that we would not use our piety and not use our kingdom citizenship as a means of bringing glory to ourselves, but that your smile is enough, your name is enough. As long as Jesus is glorified, I don't care if I get the credit. Use another man. Use another woman. Use another believer. Use another leader, but just let it be enough for my heart that your kingdom is coming and spreading. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And however you seek to do that, if it's through another person and they get the so-called credit, so God, let my left hand not know what my right hand is doing. What am I asking? Lord Jesus, be my treasure. Satisfy me in such a way that I'm not blown about by the opinions of man and I don't need to be justified in their eyes. My justification in your sight is enough so that if you use someone else, it's enough. Our Lord would guard us from the danger of evil desires. And number two, he would guard us from the tragedy of earthly praise. The tragedy of earthly praise. Look at verse two. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. A couple of things. Jesus assumes that his kingdom people, meaning 
those who have tasted grace, those whose hearts have been awakened by the grace of God, through the gospel of God, by the spirit of God, for the glory of God, that there's an impulse to give in their lives because he just assumes, doesn't he? He says, when you give, as if it's going to happen. You're going to see needs around you and that new fleshy heart, no longer a heart of stone, something in you is going to say, I want to help. He says, when you give, don't do it this way. Don't be like the religious elite. They hear the trumpet from the synagogue, maybe a call to prayer at a certain time of day, and they stop what they're doing. And it's not enough to go over in a private place and just pray to the Lord because he's enough. But, oh, heard the trumpet. Good thing I'm out in the middle of the street. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. He says, there's your reward, and you'll get nothing else. What Jesus is saying is, am I not enough? I've told you that I'm the water of life. I told you I'm the bread of life. I will satisfy you, beloved. You don't need all that. You give in secret. You pray in secret. You fast for my, do all of these things because you get me. He says of these people who it's not enough to get God. I don't want God, big G. I want God's little G, all these little functional saviors. I need to see me give and pray. He says, if that's the case, you receive your reward then. That's all you get. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, sums up what it looks like when this happens, when we settle for the praise of men rather than the praise of God. C.S. Lewis says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. If we use religious activity to get the approbation and affirmation of others, Jesus says, you're aiming too low. What a tragedy to do all this religious stuff on the outside. Because I just love the praise of men and I love to be seen, but miss out on the infinite joy of the smile of God. And our Lord would spare us from that tragedy. He says, don't go there. That, that desire is too base. It's too crass. It's too temporal. It won't satisfy. I'm the bread. I'm the water. I'm the prize. It's exactly what happens, the tragedy of the religious elite of Jesus' day. In John chapter 12, it says this, Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had acceptance. They had affirmation. They had relationship. They had a seat at the table, but it was a tragedy in the making. 
is they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. C.S. Lewis would say they settled for mud pies rather than going for a day at the beach. And beloved, our Lord, he's a good shepherd. He's a good master. He's not aiming at the heart to stick an arrow in it to kill you. He's aiming at it with a scalpel to heal you. You know what a treadmill it is to be tyrannized by the fear of man? You know how tiring it is to live for the approbation and justification of others, especially in the ministry? You know how sweet it is just to let go and say, Lord, you're enough. Use somebody else. I don't care. Just bring glory to your name. You know how soundly you sleep when Jesus is enough, truly, at the heart level? Why would it not be a good and loving thing for him to come at us with the scalpel of the word to say, don't go there. Don't prostitute your joy on anything else but me. He's helping us avoid the danger of evil desires and the tragedy of earthly praise so that, number three, he brings us to the satisfaction of eternal joy. The satisfaction of eternal joy. It is hard to tempt a satisfied person, isn't it? You catch me when I'm hangry? You know, some of you are getting there. I don't just get hungry, I get hangry. There's a difference. There's a threshold where I'm, I'm hungry, you know, but I can keep it together and look sanctimonious. But when I get hangry, it's on. I, I need food. And you can tempt me. With, you want to go to a Chinese buffet? You want to go to Taco Bell? You, it doesn't, at that point, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm blown around like the wind. Just take me somewhere. But if you can catch me when I'm full, if you can catch me coming out of, oh, where would it be? Famous Dave's. God bless him. They put all the meat on a trash can lid. <laughs> Who else can do that and charge you money for it? Get the feast for four. Tony, you know what I'm talking about. She's a famous stage girl. Catch me after a feast for four and then catch me in the parking lot and say, how's about a hot fudge Sunday?" It's really easy in that moment to say, no. You should have been here an hour and a half ago. Then it would have been maybe, but not now because I'm satisfied. That's where Jesus is taking us. Because when you're satisfied in him and his glory alone, it unlocks a thousand doors to give and to pray and to fast and to serve in a non-idolatrous way with joy and freedom. And even perhaps to a greater degree of giving and fasting and praying than you would have otherwise. Our Lord is good. Look at what he says in verse 3. But when you give to the needy, you see a need around you. You have an impulse to meet it. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, you look at that, and I've seen this tyrannize some people. And as a young believer, it did me. All these, like, do it in secret, do it in secret. Don't, don't let them know when you're fasting. Don't let them know when you give. And don't let them know when you pray. I felt spiritually disoriented until I got my feet on the ground because I thought, okay, if I really want to be spiritual, you can't know that I'm giving, so I have to like, do like some sort of subterfuge, you know, like hide money under a rock and then hope that you find it or something. And Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and so like, even my own body is not supposed to know what it's doing, and so I'm just going to look away and just put some things. That, like, what is he talking about? 
I would wager, based upon the totality of the Sermon on the Mount and the ministry of Christ and the rest of Scripture, I would wager that this is simply, this left-hand, right-hand thing is just a way of illustrating what it looks like to be so captivated by God's glory that meeting the needs of others is a natural rhythm and impulse in our lives. Jesus is saying, be so satisfied in the king of the kingdom in which you are a part so that it is a natural overflow out of your gladness in him that your left hand doesn't have to go to your right hand and say, oh, we're supposed to give now. There's the, tick that off the list of religious things to do. You're a kingdom citizen. He says, just let your satisfaction in God flow out of you in a natural and organic way so that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. How different from the religious elite of Jesus' day where it was definitely a checklist and it was definitely so everybody could see it, so you know I did the thing. Saved people don't talk like that. Jesus says, look at me, look at me. Like the guy in The Hobbit, you know, where he's about to kill the dragon. My kids were just watching this in the truck the other day. It's hard to have The Hobbit playing when you're driving. <laughs> in surround sound, no doubt. But he was about to shoot the black arrow at the dragon, and, and the child was scared. But what did Bard say to him? He says, look at me. Don't, don't look over there. Don't, don't look over my shoulder. Don't look at the danger behind me. You just look at me. We got this. Jesus is saying, look at me. So much of the fight for growth and sanctification is sight. What did 2 Peter 1 say? He says, if you're not growing in sanctification, it's because you're so nearsighted, you've become blind. You've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. You've gotten off of the gospel. You're not seeing things clearly. You're forgetting who I am and what I've done for you. So if we are seeing Jesus, he's saying, look at me. Be satisfied in me. I paid the price for your sin. You're not condemned. You go to bed tonight knowing you're not going to wake up in hell because of me. Not I, but Christ in me. All of that is yours because of me. Look at me. So that you are so satisfied that it, you meet a need and you give and you pray just as a natural rhythm of the kingdom because I don't have to sit and check off my religious checkbook. I'm just walking with my king. That's what he's talking about. So just take a sigh of relief. Jesus is getting at the heart. If someone sees you giving to someone or if you happen to pray and someone hears you pray, it's okay. He's more concerned with motive than he is with method. So how does all this come to pass as we transition to the Lord's table? How does, how does this come to pass? What creates that kind of rhythm in the life of a person to where giving and praying and fasting is just a natural overflow? I would submit to you that the gospel creates givers. We want to see verses 3 and 4 happen, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's saying, do it for Him. He's the reward. What creates that? It's the gospel. Think of the verbiage and how it connects to today's text. A dangerously familiar verse. John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he 
gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is the fact that God gave his perfect, spotless lamb to stand, as the old preachers used to say, in our law place to absorb the judgment we deserve. God gave all the shadows in the Old Testament. Every lamb on every Jewish altar is pointing to John 1.29. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God gave him. And God has put that in our hearts, that gladness in his forgiveness and our gladness in his lamb so that we give also because money and time and identity, these things no longer dominate our lives. They're not functional saviors because God gave the savior. And by being satisfied in him, it frees us up to be very open-handed people. And I pray, and I should say that you have been, as a church body, you have borne witness to your love of this gospel because you are a giving people. I've seen now that I've been here and in the rhythm of life, not just in the general fund, but just I see you and how you interact and meeting needs of those around you. And pastorally, that makes my heart happy, not because I care about the act itself, but it tells me there's a gospel rhythm in that life. They just meet a need. They pray. They move toward those things as an overflow of gladness. They don't have the religious to-do list and say, okay, I did the giving thing, did the praying thing. No, no, no. There's an impulse of a new heart that says, I just want to bless you because I've been blessed. I want to give to you because God gave to me. And my joy in Christ is leaking out of me, and it has to go somewhere, and I want it to be you. Christians talk that way. Kingdom citizens talk that way. So take heart. He who began that work in you will complete it to the day of Christ. And he will repay a millionfold anything you give up in this life. And I pray that the gospel of the giving God would ravish our hearts in such a way that we are freed from the joyless tyranny of man-pleasing and are empowered to give sacrificially and secretly for the joy of others. Would you pray with me?